Hello there, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, with another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. It is October, it is Halloween season, and we are in Halloween mood. So naturally, what better show to talk about in Halloween time than one of the many WCW Halloween Havoc pay-per-views that happened during the late 80s and through the 90s. And joining us once again to review... Halloween Havoc 1989, the very first Halloween Havoc, my usual co-host from the, well, actually he's escaped the asylum and he's actually somewhere in a forest in North Kakalaki this time, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I am. Yet again, like our last episode of regular Geekville, I am in the woods in a shack. Seth has taken these classes in sound editing at his local college and he had a little fun with the last recording we did. And when I went out and listened, it improved the quality. You couldn't tell I was on my phone as opposed to a computer, but it sounded like I had a head cold. So <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do in the editing this time. What is it? It's kind of a choice between sound quality or me sounding like I'm, I'm I've right. got stuffed up. Kind yeah, of- <laughs> well, yeah, we're we're just we're just going to stick with the good old fashioned uh, phone call here rather than try to gussy it up too much. Besides, you you kind of got to keep well- your cover anyway. <laughs> Well, the way I look at it, we're complaining about this in the year of our Lord, 2021. Real first world problems, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you probably handle it, explaining the rest of this, since this was pretty much your idea and kind of how you run the show here for all the Geekville shows in, in October. This is the month of Halloween, and it was your idea. Let's just kind of tie everything together into Halloween, since it's your favorite holiday and one of my favorite holidays as well. And really, that was kind of the best thing we both kind of thought about for Halloween for Classic Wrestling Memories was we can talk about these Halloween Havoc pay-per-views that WCW had because especially in some of these early ones, you see what was great about the company and what was kind of not so great about the company. Right. Well, I think when you and I made this decision last year and did our first one like this, we immediately went to 92 and and the, the, the infamous Chamber of Horrors. And then when this year rolled around, we're like, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, you know, let's do another Halloween Havoc. If we are still around in 11 years, we will have gone through all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a, a number of them to pull for. Uh, and, and even after, if we're still doing podcasts and we do all the Halloween Havocs, we need to circle back around and redo one we've done before. There are other Halloween-themed uh, pay-per-views and wrestling events amongst multiple companies or right. angles we could do. But anyway, you had suggested, well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's do 89. So that's what we'll do. Of course, this was before you were really watching wrestling. This is what, maybe a year or two out from you really getting into wrestling? Right, before I was really watching it seriously. Because I, I do remember trying to stay up, watch a couple Saturday Night's main events back in the day. I mm-hmm. distinctly remember watching the Hogan-Andre match where Hogan lost the title. But I also do right. remember seeing a couple of shows. I can't remember if it would have been on WPWR channel uh, 60 or 50, or might've even been at the time WGBO uh, channel 66 before it became a Spanish station in Chicago. You did say WPWR, not WPBR, right? Right. right. Yeah. WPWR. Because PBR would be really popular down here. That station alone on its name would would be very popular. (laughs) Yeah, and they they called themselves the power station. Uh, They actually even used, I I think, some like it hot for their interval music. Ah, But anyway. The power station. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, yep. With the, uh, who had the singles career coming out of that? It was Robert Palmer, I believe. Robert Palmer. Yeah. And the two guys from Duran Duran. Yeah. That was their super group. Yeah. But anyway, we're not here to talk about music. We're talking about wrestling. (laughs) I had seen a couple of stuff, which I now know was 
WCW back in the day. I didn't know it at the time because I was looking around, where's Hulk Hogan? Right. But I do remember right. seeing the great Muda and how strongly he was put over as he's the world television champion. Nobody's been able to beat him, and, right. and he does the, right. the huge right. kicks right. and the flips and all that. So I do remember some of WCW from this time. Well, that is a large part of the buildup of this show. But let's go back in the time machine to 1989. This is the first year that Turner is fully taken over Crockett. So it is officially been redubbed World Championship Wrestling, even though they're still recognizing NWA titles and calling them the NWA. The full-on transition to dropping the NWA would be for about another three or four years. But if you remember, famously, 1989 was the year of Flair. It was the, the first half of the, the spring was the, the trilogy of, of matches that I say personally to this day are the gold standard of what, what pro wrestling can be between him and Rich Steamboat, where they traded the belt back. And, mm -hmm. and if you remember, that angle ended, that feud ended with Flair retain, or, or gaining the belt back, being congratulated post-match by Terry Funk in the ring to immediately have Terry Funk attack him. Right. This was a few years after Funk had uh, movie roles. He was in the TV show Wild Side, right. probably most notably. I think he was in uh, Roadhouse, I want to say. But he, he was, was kind of. Roadhouse, I think it was like 88, I think. Was that yeah. right? Like a year before this? Yeah. So he was coming back to the wrestling world after having uh, right. several years in, in right. acting. And in the process of the Flair Steamboat feud, Flair was at that point where he was becoming the legend that he is now. To where no matter what he did, he was going to be perceived as a babyface. And so the crowd kind of turned him babyface. And the mishandling of, of the angle, in my opinion, the angle between him and Steve. The, the matches were great, but I think they were cast wrong. You know, times were changing. And casting Ricky Steamboat as, as like this super clean-cut, milk-toast family man versus the, the womanizer, the young male fans were starting to cheer for Flair because they were more about that than they were about Steamboat. So... Once, once Funk attacks him like that, he's a full-on baby fan at this point. The four horsemen are over. Arn and Tully have left and gone to Vince as the Brain Busters. Ole has retired. Luger is coming off of a babyface run where he left the horsemen and had feuded with Flair. So it, it, the horsemen really are no more. Flair's a full-on babyface. Sting is really starting to, to, to build momentum because he'd had the, the clash match of Flair the year before, the 45-minute time limit draw. Yeah. Made and really right. regarding Luger, this was when he had that epic U.S. title run. I think to the to this day, yep. it's the longest like U.S. title run. Or something? something like, like yeah. And, and there was a turn during the reign. I think he he either won the title as a heel and turned babyface, or vice versa. But it's like he turned like at least I, I once during the reign. I think he won the belt as a babyface from Barry Windham, if I remember, because Barry was still in, in in the Horseman at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he turned heel during the course of the run. And then he was kind of a tweener, and then they've turned him full-on babyface when Flair left a few years later to go to Vince and put the belt, the world title on him. You know, unfortunately, with everything getting moved over to Peacock, we've lost a lot of the stuff except for the pay-per-views. So if we're wrong, ladies and gentlemen, please correct us in the comments. We're going completely off of website results and our own memory. Fortunately for me, a lot of the stuff around this era, I had watched right before the network went away. So it wasn't that long ago that I watched it. So, but like I said, if we're wrong, correct us. Yep. But, we're always um, open for correction. So Flair's establishes your number one baby face. Stings right under him. Funk is obviously the top, top heel because he's feuding with Flair. Muda, like you said earlier, had, they brought him in from Japan. 
but he was Kenji Muto, and they put the mask, they put the paint, face paint on him, and did the mist. And Gary Hart is a manager, and he's your secondary, sec- he's like your secondary top heel. Once again, this is a transitional time, not only for the company as they're moving over to a national company from a regional company with Turner's buyout, but I think the, I think it's safe to say the wrestling business as a whole, especially the importance of pay per view, was also in its infancy in the business. So it, the business itself was in it was in a transitional phase. Would you agree with that? Yeah, because in the late 80s, there were still the places that would do the closed circuit, your bar or theater or things like that, where you would pay a cover at the door. Yes, uh, and essentially watch a what was then considered a big screen, which was probably just a a, uh, rear projector, like like Mm -hmm. they used to have in uh, in school back in the day or or in the bars back in the day as well. So as we break down the the matches in the second segment of the show, we will remind you that this is an infancy for pay-per-view and the companies are kind of learning how to do it and what exactly is expected by the fan base out of a pay-per-view. We've brought this up before when we reviewed some of these other pay-per-views from around this era, that why are they having a squash match? Seems like it should have been on television in a pay-per-view. So just keep that Mm -hmm. in the back of your mind, ladies and gentlemen. But the, the major angle that came out of the funk attack on Flair is Flair takes time off to sell the neck injury from being Paul driven through the table. And he had just returned to the ring a few months earlier at the Great American Bash, where he defended the belt against Funk. This is one of the first examples uh, of where they, they did not stick by the 30-day champion must defend his belt rule. I, I, I lament the loss of that ideology, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's a fair thing to, ma- to make. I mean, really, it that was kind of more of an American thing, because obviously in New Japan and such, guys will go multiple months without a title defense, but that's just because... Well, that's also because they don't run around the year-round year, year round like we do. They do like the right. six weeks tours and take three weeks off. Right, right. They have and, more and, seasonal things. Yeah. yeah, and really uh, what I've seen with Japanese titles is they tend to go more on the number of title defenses that you make rather than the number of days you hold the title. Mm-hmm. Well, if you go back to our Unpopular Opinions episode where we talked about Ronnie Garvin's world title run, which was a year before this in 88, that, I think, was the key issues there was when he beat Flair for the title, in these hopes of protecting him, Dusty, of course, was the booker at that time. Dusty comes on television and makes, or actually, I think it was Jim Crockett Jr. comes on television and makes the announcement, Ronnie Garvin will not defend the title until Flair has his rematch at Starcade. So yeah. he goes like a full month and a half, two months without defending the title. So that's right. the first time they had, they had not stood by the 30-day rule, and I don't think it worked well then. It probably... Worked a little better with Flair because Flair was more over than Ronnie Garvin, but it still, I think, weakened the title, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, 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 so, I, I agree. Because I think uh, a few years later after that, when Bret Hart won the title in WWF, the fact that they made it kind of Bret's, I don't want to say gimmick, but the storyline that he had was Bret's like, I'm fighting champion every time I step in the ring. Had Ronnie done something was, like that, it probably would have worked better. I think I think Ronnie did have one title defense against Tully Blanchard on UWF television back then, mm-hmm. but... That's only half of the – I mean, Ronnie Garvin's not over with that crowd. He's over with the Carolina-Georgia crowd, and he's not defending it on their television. So, anyway, that's another right. podcast for another time. Check out our Unpopular Opinions episode to hear mm-hmm. more on the Ronnie Garvin. And know, there is going to be a volume two of Garvin. that as well. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, so Flair comes back after two or three months off, successfully defends the title at the Great American Bash against Funk, who was already having Gary Hart come to the ring with him at the time as his manager. And there's an obvious Texas connection. Terry, Terry from Amarillo. Gary has that long history in Dallas with world class, mm-hmm. so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If I recall correctly, there was a time where if you basically wanted to work 
in Texas pretty much at all back in the territory days. You essentially went through Gary Hart. Um, no matter yeah. what territory you went through, I think in he our, probably early, he knew how to, he knew who to talk to. Exactly yeah, correct. in the early days, you're exactly correct. So your secondary feud is the one that you alluded to earlier, Seth. Is they bring Muda in and strap a rocket to him, and he wins the TV title. I think from Sting. And has not lost on television. I mean, he, he lost at house shows and, like, disqualifications and stuff. But he had mm-hmm. never been cleanly pinned on television. And post-Flair Funk match, he comes out and helps attack Flair. And, and then Sting comes out, I guess because, well, it makes sense because he's feuding with Muda to help Flair. And it also strengthens Flair as a babyface because now him and Sting are, are, are established. And I remember that pay-per-view was, once again, early days of pay-per-view. They hadn't really mastered it yet. They actually ended early. There was probably like four or five, maybe six minutes left of satellite time that they had to kill. So they just devolved this absolutely insane brawl between those four guys where Muda got, the, you know, Funk's branding iron and visibly bent it around Sting's knee at one point. And Muda missed it Flair at one point. Flair sold it. And Bob Coddle and Jim Ross, who were also the announced team on this pay-per-view, we're at the end of the, of, of, of the entryway, by like where the curtain was, and there's this wild brawl going behind them trying to fill up time. And, and they even wind up interviewing Sting and Flair, and, and you and me have both said, when Flair is, is blown up and sweaty mm-hmm. and emotional, those are some of the best Flair promos you'll ever get. You know? Absolutely, yeah. So Flair's cutting this promo, and his face is just covered, looks like with charcoal soot, because it's the black mist. And... They've still got a few more minutes, so Funk and, and Muda come down the aisle and attack him again as they're being interviewed. It was a brawl that was ECW Attitude Era level brawls all over the building, in the aisles, into the crowd. So this is probably the beginning of Terry Funk becoming transitioning from the, the former NWA world champion to the hardcore legend that he would yeah. become. The middle-aged yeah. crazy uh, Terry Funk. Yeah, middle-aged crazy, exactly. And that whole setup, was what the impetus of the main event of this show, which we're going to go break down each match, match by match in the next segment. And this is also how now they've evolved the main heel stable to be the JTEX Corporation. It's no longer just the Texas connection of Gary Hart and Jerry Funk. Now you've brought Muda in. They bring the Dragon Master in. They bring in, I think Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer were part of, the, of this faction at one point. And it's all of this time that, that famous promo that Flair cuts and Funk come up, comes up behind him with the plastic trash bag and tries to suffocate him. I mean, all this happens leading up to this, this main event at Halloween mm-hmm. On top of that, it's also a transitional time in the tag team. The Rock and Roll Express are kind of passe and gone. The Midnight Express have just recently been turned babyface because of their feud with the original Midnight Express. And Dennis Condry got upset and left, and they never really liked Randy Rose, so they got rid of him. And Paul Heyman had nothing to do, so they bring in the Samoans. And they put the Samoans with him. And then they get mad with Paul Heyman, and they fire Paul Heyman, of course at the time with Paulie Dangerously, and bring in Sir Oliver Humperdinck and calling him the Big Kahuna and put him with, with, with the Samoans. So you'll see them later on this show. The Varsity Club had kind of run its course at this point. Right. And Rick Steiner had left and become a, a singles guy as a babyface. Well, his brother Scott was just starting in Memphis as a singles guy. And they were going to bring Scott into tag with Rick. So they did a long angle where Rick was infatuated with this cute, quote unquote, nerdy girl at fan at ringside named Robin Green. And as you like to always joke about on a regular podcast, it was obvious she was a beautiful woman 
their way of making her quote unquote ugly was putting glasses on her and have her yeah. wear clothes that kind of covered up her body. Yeah. And tie it, up the hair or course, something like Nancy, that. Yeah. Right. Of course it's Nancy at the time, Sullivan, uh, woman. And this is all a ruse to fool Rick Steiner. And that was always his character. Anyways, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? He was a dog face mm-hmm. gremlin. And then she drops the glasses and puts on the makeup and the pretty evening gowns and sexes herself up. And she becomes woman. Around this time, she, she had a bodyguard called Nitron. I don't remember where he went, but he disappeared. And she winds up buying the contract of Doom, mm-hmm. which, of course, would later on to be unmasked as Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. But at the time, they were just these two jacked-up black guys with masks, right. which I never quite understood. You just have Butch Reed and Ron Simmons as single guys on your television. These are two very jacked-up guys, very distinctive-looking bodies, and the only two black guys being pushed on your television. And you think just putting black masks on is going to make anybody know who it isn't? Come on. Right. And and there there's another story in there, too, I think, is that this was, I, because Halloween Havoc, I think, was their debut. They they were being pushed as, I think. Right, the, they were. They were. They, they were called Woman's Tag Team of Doom. I don't know if that was meant, like, the, right. whether the team right. was just Doom or they're saying, oh, it's the tag right, team right. of Doom. But I ran the Slugfest of Doom for many years, so I guess that's why it kind of ring, lingers in my head like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got Babyface. Midnight Express, you've got this heel Doom, who's a new team. You brought Scott in to save his brother from this nefarious woman. So the Steiners are a new tag team. The Freebirds were in the company, and it was the original three Freebirds. I'm sure Gary Hart had something to do with that at the time. Mm-hmm. But Terry, Terry starts having his problem with drugs and whatnot and goes to Japan. Buddy Jack, who was always older than Michael and Terry anyway, says, heck, I'm going to retire. And he does. And... Not knowing what to do, Michael convinces Jimmy Garvin to come in. And, of course, Jimmy always hung with the Freebirds anyways, behind the scenes. You actually do see him in the Bad Street USA video. He, he is part of that, that yeah, music yeah, video. Yeah. Well, he was one of the top heels in World War Class when they had their big run in 82. So it makes sense. And so they, he becomes the new Freebird. And with what we're talking about with the with the, everybody turning and, and longtime teams, like the Fantastics had left and gone to Japan, you know. So you've got this, this massive changeover. They need an experienced team to be the champs, and you usually put your belts on heels, so they just put them on the Freebirds. So they're your tag champs. The, the, the Skyscrapers are a new tag team. Sid Vicious has just come in from Memphis in his Lord Humongous run, and he hasn't joined the Horsemen yet. And They bring in Danny Spivey in from Japan, so they're new. So they're, all these, as we think of these great early 90s tag, this is basically right when they're debuting or starting is this pay-per-view. Right, right. Uh, And then the other tag team that would be important at this time would be the Dynamic Dudes, which was Johnny Ace, fresh in from Japan, and Shane Douglas, fresh from a TV title run for the old UWF. They give them a surfer gimmick, and it doesn't work, and they try putting Cornette, who is now a babyface, with them as their manager. You know, it's a very confusing time. And Dusty, yeah. of course, had been fired at this point, and the book is, is in George Scott's hands. And I think he wasn't long. I think he might even have been gone by this point, and Ole Anderson had took back over. Yeah, I, I want to um, say it was Ole. And also, if I recall correctly about the skyscrapers, the story behind them was they did a, I think it was a two-ring battle royal, where guys would clear out whatever ring they were in, and then if right, they were the right, last right. man in each ring, then they would have a match. And it was Sid and Dan Spivey. And then Teddy Long... They yes, were, the same the same Teddy Long who would go on to be the longtime manager on SmackDown. Uh, he convinced them to join together. So I guess they like split the money rather than have a match, and then that's kind of how the skyscrapers were so born. 
so that's the angle how the skyscrapers are created and Teddy Long becomes their manager. Exactly, yeah. Gotcha. So those are basically all your feuds going on. You've got, uh, like I said, with the varsity club splitting up, you got Mike Rotunda kind of floating around with nothing to do, and it wouldn't be long, and he'd be up in, up north doing IRS. Right. Well, and he'd have Dr. the Michael Dad, Wall Street run first, with who right. would become with Terry Reynolds, obviously. But yeah. Marlena. Dr. Death, who was also a member of, of Varsity Club, is now a babyface again. Mm-hmm. And he's associated loosely with Cornette and a babyface Midnight Express. Ole brings back in Tommy Rich. Tommy hadn't been seen on national TV in years. He had been in Memphis for the last, what, five, six years as a heel. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Ole would have loved Tommy because Tommy, he was booking Georgia when Tommy had this huge run in 81 and won the world title for Bobby Ray. You know? Makes sense, so, yeah. Yeah. And he's thinking, well, Atlanta-based company. Tommy's always over in Georgia. So that's kind of where you stand right now with the company. Big-time transition. You got this big, heavy stuff on top with Flair and Funk, Mood and Sting. You got Luger as kind of the secondary guy with a long run. Brian Pillman's just started, come down from Canada, and he's like immediately a top baby face. Tom Zink's just come in from Minneapolis. He's a mid-car baby face, good-looking guys. Not much longer after this, they started tagging them together. Yeah, and, and Z-Man had that tag run with uh, Rick Martell early on in Rick Martell's WWE run. I think there was the yeah, Can-Am yeah. connection. He right. was the Am part of the Can-Am connection with Martell and being Tom, the Canadian Tom part. Tom got tired of the politics and left the company. <laughs> yeah. Tom Zink just always struck me as the type of guy, he just wanted to wrestle. Just let him have his matches. Right. Yeah, I think that and hook up with girls after the matches. I yeah. think <laughs> but, but when you look like him... You can kind of see that. That's so. not difficult. Yeah. Right, right. So that's where we are. We're, we're, remember, as we review these matches, very much of a transitional phase. Flair hasn't quite got upset with the corporate environment, but it, this is coming quickly. We're changing bookers. We're creating and bringing in these. And, of course, the LOD's still around. But it's not much longer. They're going up to Vince, too, aren't they? About a year later? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it was 1990 when they made their debut, because that was around the time I really had started watching full-time. And I think I, I, right. I seem to recall thinking, Wait a minute, I think I just saw these guys on the WCW show a couple weeks ago. Right, so really the only team that's an established team that's been around for a while left is Midnight. Everybody Mm -hmm. else's rock and rolls are gone, the Fantastics are gone, Tully and Arn are gone. It's all these new tag teams with this returning Kerry Funk feuding with the the local hero of Flair on top. Sting just starting, Muda just coming over, and a lot of other guys just kind of floating around, not really sure what they're going to do with them. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's it's a weird mix of veterans like Flair and Tommy Rich and the Road Warriors and younger guys like Steiners and Sid Vicious. So that's where we are. It's a transition period in the company, which makes sense. This is the inaugural Halloween Havoc, and it's and it is a transitional time for the wrestling business as a whole, especially with pay per view. So I think that's probably a good enough setup for the fans to kind of understand what we're going to be going into with these matches. So well, you want to go ahead and just take a break now, and when we come back, we'll just hit, we'll hit the ground running with the matches. Yep, sounds like a plan. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back. Attention all time lords and ladies. This message is being sent by Lady President Romana and the High Council of Gallifrey. Heatville Radio presents Examining the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor about everybody's favorite time lord, the Doctor. From Hartnell to Whitaker, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for favorite and not-so-favorite Doctor Who stories. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeekGoRadio.com, or wherever podcasts can be found. All right, we are back. Classic Wrestling Memories, talking Halloween Havoc 1989. And this was shown on pay-per-view 
on October 28th, 1989. I'm not sure what day of the week that would have been, but basically, th- you know, three days before the actual Halloween date. Uh, I'm running to the wiki right now mm-hmm. on the continual calendar, I should say, to figure out when that was. Keep yeah. talking I'm, while well, I'm looking. Yeah. <laughs> but it's notable for taking place in Philadelphia because one of the things that Philadelphia became known for, I don't know if it had really hit at this point yet, but it certainly hit with ECW and uh, all the independent promotions that had sprung up since then, that Philadelphia is one of those big wrestling towns where the crowd might just side with the villains or they, they just, they would choose who they wanted rather than the cheer the baby faces. So it'd be kind of like some people call it a bizarro town or heel heavy town. I always called it a Chicago, a, a heel friendly city. And I think it was kind of a similar thing with Philadelphia. You'd have a lot of people that just, they want to be cool and, and cheer the bad guys. Yeah. I remember this is, this is the town where they had the midnights go over on, on the four horsemen mm-hmm. for the tag titles in a heel heel match because the Midnight Express were a little bit more over it was baby faces in that town. But Philadelphia for historical sake always was like that because they were one of those towns that both the Crockett's and Vince ran. And so they got an exposure to the, the cartoon circus silliness of Vince with the hard hitting realistic action of the NWA. It was a town, and you'll see it as we talk about these matches, if they didn't pull for the heel, if they did pull for a baby face, it was a baby face that was a really dynamic type baby that had like really cool new school moves Yeah, that time. Or what we would call a character baby face, not necessarily the white meat mm. traditional baby face. Right. And we'll, we'll break that down as we talk about particular matches. So a mm-hmm. little bit of trivia sake, the ring announcer on this show is Gary Michael Capetta. He actually is a high school Spanish teacher or was in the Philadelphia area. That's why he always did those interviews with Eligante in this, in this era, because he speaks oh, okay. Spanish fluently. And because both Vince and the Crockett's are running and they would both run the spectrum, he was just the ring announcer for the spectrum. So he was one of the few guys that was working for both companies during the war. I did not know that. For what it's worth, I think Gary Michael Pettis is one of the best ring announcers we've ever had. I put him up there with Fink on a guy that and, and I've met Gary. He's a super nice guy. Mm. I wish I had some teachers in high school that were that cool. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's kind of just why I think the vibe has always existed in, in Philly for that. They, Baltimore was another city. Like, D.C. was another city like that, where they were just right on the border between the two territories, so they saw two very vastly different products. And one group of fans liked one and one liked the other, and the one that liked the other tended to be much more vocal. And remember, I know that, Technically, Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love, but this is the same city that realized they had so much problems with violence and fighting in the stands at sporting events. The Veteran Stadium, where the Eagles used to play, they had a holding cell and a judge's office in the basement of the building just to process the number of fights they would get during Eagles games. That's wow. <laughs> that's the kind of city <laughs> they threw snowballs at, at Santa Claus at an Eagles game. Okay, yeah. that's the kind of town we're talking about. Can you get more heel than that? Town. Attacking Santa Claus? <laughs> it's a rough town. It's the only town in America where I actively tried to babyface as a character babyface and still got booed. So for whatever that's worth, it, it is what it is. But mm-hmm. uh, I did check, by the way, the 28th was a Saturday. Oh, okay. Halloween, like you said, would be a few days later. It was on a Tuesday that year. So we have at least kind of settled into the idea that Saturday, you know, a weekend day is a pay-per-view. But that's still a change because... 
you know, it wouldn't be much longer until all pay-per-views were on Sunday nights. So Yeah, you, you will see it here and there, especially with UFC. I think that they'll run shows on Saturday. But yeah, right. I, I think it just kind of settled on Sunday because the work week starts on Monday. People have come home. I, I think that's why right. Sunday kind of became the big pay-per-view. Yeah, the, the, the last time I remember WWF not running a, a, a Sunday pay-per-view would be because it was somewhere overseas, like Saudi Arabia or England. Yeah, you know? and well, funny you should say that because they're... Uh, a crown jewel show is actually this week, which will be on a it's right. here a uh, Thursday morning. Which is strange because my understanding from my cousin that lived in Saudi Arabia, Thursday is the Sabbath, so to speak. Mm. Okay, there because that's in the, in the Islamic world. So I guess technically, with it, you know, the Sabbath being Sunday over here and Thursday over there, they're, they're kind of fun. Mm. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess that does kind of add up. Re- it's a day of rest, right? But anyway. So. Well, we to start with the first match. Then, we, oh yeah. By the way, we need to. We also need to say this is coming from Philadelphia, like Seth said. We've already said Gary Michael Capetto was was the ring announcer. The referees throughout this match are going to alternate between Tommy Young and, and a very young Nick Patrick. And the the announce crew was Jim Ross and Bob Cottle. And the backstage interviews were being done by Gordon Soley. And the one nine hundred hotline type stuff and post game was being done by Lance Russell. Is that not insane that one company had arguably the Mount Rushmore of wrestling announcers all working the same show on the same time. Right, right. And and for a little while before this, they had, uh, and a little while after this too, they had Tony Schiavone. Although at this point, Schiavone was Tony working WWF. Yeah, but, yeah. but I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that Jim Ross, Bob Cottle, Lance Russell, and Gordon Soley are a lot of people's Mount Rushmore of announcers. Am I wrong Absolutely. in saying that? It's if Gordon Soley is the greatest play-by-play man of all time, Jim Ross is probably the greatest play-by-play man that's still with us, you might say. Yep. And a lot of people say Jim Ross is the greatest, but Jim will always see to Gordon. Of course, Gordon was doing the backstage interviews at the time, but he was very used to that with his days with championship wrestling from Florida. Yeah, yeah, he you was know, good so with that. And, and Bob was, Cottle was very comfortable with being the color guy. I know it's kind of common right. in those times for the color guy to be a heel, but Bob Cottle was a color guy who did things that just complemented what uh, Jim Ross was saying. Right. Yeah, because Bob, first here in the Carolinas, he would be the play by he would be the play by play guy, and his and his color guy would be David Crockett or Johnny Weaver or Dusty. But yeah, I think he transitioned just fine into the role as color guy with Jim doing play by play. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, you know, But but anyway, now you know you know where it's from, who the announce team is, who the refs are, who the ringer announcer is. Let's get go to the matches. Seth. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the first match was Z Man Tom Zank pinned Captain Mike Rotunda with a body press. And Rotunda was clearly the heel here. I'd forgotten how curly his hair was for a while. It really wasn't until he started doing the Michael Wall Street thing, I think, that he really started straightening it. And this was one of those kind of straight-up heel baby faces. It was clear Z-Man was the baby face. Mike Rotunda was the heel. This was coming off the breakup of the Varsity Club. And uh, so much so, he's still wearing the Varsity Club gimmick. Yeah, pretty much. He's wearing a single that says VC. He hadn't even got new ring gear yet. (laughs) Right. So uh, people would say that nowadays, I think, that there was no storyline for this match. And you'd said before that sometimes you don't need one. But you, you just got a good guy. You got a bad guy. Not every match has to have this inner ongoing involved storyline for why a match takes place. I think that's just kind of more of a modern thing these days. Uh, Since Zink the uh, Monday Night War happened is what, Tom, I, what I... Yeah. Tom Zink did not win with a flying press. Rotunda went for a flying press and he rolled through it. Oh, through it. it. Okay. But, you know, it was... It was what it was. Mm-hmm. It was back in the territory days. That would have been a middle of the card or an opening match, like you said, pretty much straight lace, baby face heel. Both guys were getting the ring. Obviously, both had good looks. 
I'm reminded watching that match that Mike Rotunda had all the skills to be a singles guy, but seemed to be always better when he was in tag teams, whether it was with Barry or with Ted. Just, yeah. And I think most of us would agree that Mike's best run was as IRS. Yeah. It helped to bring out some of, some of his personality and charisma that just being Mike Rotunda, he just didn't have. Right. It, it, it's and, the and same Tom, type of thing of what sells more, the guy's wrestling or the guy's ability to bring out a character uh, in himself. Entertain, yeah. yeah. And Tom Zink was obviously a pretty good natural athlete, had a great body because he was a bodybuilder, Mr. Minnesota, before he got into wrestling. But I never saw Tom as a top guy. Tom was a great mm-hmm. mid-card, good-looking guy for the women. Right. And the, the crowd reacted as such. They weren't really into it, but they weren't booing it either. It was filler. Nothing bad, nothing crazy. These are two guys that have been around a while. That Their timing was good. They bumped well. It was what it was. Mm-hmm. What's your yeah. thoughts on the match? I would use the term in a lot of my other wrestling shows, perfectly fine. So I guess I could call it here. You know, it was a perfectly fine match. Okay. You know, yeah. It was an opener. Right. Yeah. And uh, there were two guys they had on boots and they were in a ring and something happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good guy was cheered. The bad guy was booed and the good guy wound up winning. Which, so. which once again, that has been a big change that I'm, I'm, I booked that way. So nowadays, and it has been for years now, this super hot opener that's usually high flying. That was more of your standard old school was a clear defined baby face heel in a pure wrestling match. This match, there wasn't a lot of, of eye rakes. There wasn't a lot of punches thrown. It was wrestling moves and the baby face usually goes over. It's a time limit draw. And that's exactly what we got here. Right. Right. And then we got Chris Cruz, I believe, interviewing Bruno Sammartino. We talked about refereeing the main event. And mm-hmm. then we got a six man tag team match, the Samoan SWAT team and the Samoan Savage with Oliver Humperdinck, and they beat Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and the Midnight Express. There was the beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan version with Drunk, yeah, w- with Jim Cornette. And I think I'd even texted you when I was watching this. It's just like seeing young Jim Cornette as a baby face just never seemed right. Obviously, later in his career when he was the authority figure in TNA and such, I think he was kind of the baby face by default because the, right. the, the, the heel authority figure had already run its course by that time. But to see a young Jim Cornette so play school. baby face. And he's so old school, he wouldn't want to do that anyway. But it, this match, though, it, it shows how good Rikishi is because obviously the, the modern fan may only know him as being Rikishi in uh, WWE with the, with the thong and the dancing and, and all that stuff. Right. But he was always really good in the ring. I, right. Very he, athletic. Well, he is one half of the Samoan SWAT team. He is mm-hmm. going by his real name, Fatu, and his with his cousin, Samu, as his partner. Right. I, I always liked that name, then, Simone Swat Team Way. I, I just thought it sounded cool. I thought it was cool. I thought it was cool. And yeah, the thing that stood out to me about this match, or, or to dovetail off what you're talking about, as I'm watching it going, is there anybody in the NOIA family who can't wrestle? I think they were born knowing how to wrestle. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Everything that it does looks good. It looks snug, but I know it's safe. They can bump. If they want to do that very stereotypical, politically incorrect Polynesian savage, or if they want to be kind of more modern, like Roman or The Rock, or those, right. there's nothing but respect for the NOI. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you probably feel the same way as a wrestling fan. Oh yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And and the little things when you tr- when you watch this match closely, it seemed like it was Doctor Death was the only one that had the toughness on the par right. with the Samoans. Bobby was. Relying on his mat technique, Stan had the educated feet. So it wasn't just a straight up, they were depicting the Midnights as being as tough as the Samoans. They were just, they were, they were using their skills differently. 
than the Samoans were. Right. They were being, they were being typical babyface. They were using their speed and their technical prowess, whereas the heels were just these savages using brute force. That's, right. that's an old school way to look at babyface heel dynamic. Mm-hmm. I did notice several times the Samoans botch a couple of, of Stan's kick spots, but that's because they were green. Mm-hmm. They still covered it okay. You know, Stan was a constant professional. He's a hell of a worker. He's a, he was a 10-year vet at this point. He'd already mm-hmm. had his run with Steve and, and, and Kern and, and the fabulous ones. He'd had his run with, with Bobby and the Midnights. This was old hat for him. I've always liked Sir Oliver Humperdinck. I thought he was a fine addition to them once Paul Heyman got fired. The other things I noticed from this match were there was a spot, there was a pretty normal spot for Bobby to take throughout his whole career where he took a, a hip toss on the concrete in the run, on, on the entryway from one of the Samoans. And I, I, I harkened back to a time that I worked Bobby at a bar show in Columbia, South Carolina, where he called the same spot in front of 50 people. That's all you need to know about Bobby. Here I am, a no-name scrub, and he's putting, he's sacrificing, and he's probably 42 at the time, right? Sacrificing his body like that to make me look good. That's Bobby. That's why he's one of the greatest and most respected. The finish saw Stan kick Samu and get a visual pin. Cornette mm-hmm. hit Humperdink, but then Samu hit Stan with a flying forearm from behind. That caused Stan to topple forward and collide with Cornette, and that was the finish. Stan got pinned after that. Right. I, I know I'm kind of beating the bush when I say this, but it's like if this was the modern day, there would have been some sort of distraction with that, and then there just would have been the roll-up from behind. Because it's like in modern wrestling, it's like the roll-up is like right. suddenly the move that nobody can kick out of anymore. So it was, right. it was nice that Two they had that. Because, uh, you know, you, can't, you clonk your head against somebody else's head. That's going to cause you to see stars for a little bit. Yeah. Two, two things that uh, stuck out to me about the finish. Humperdinck tried to block Cornette's tennis racket shot because I don't think he knew Cornette well enough to trust him like that. And I think he wanted to hurt in his arm in the attempt to block. But Humperdinck was an old school guy, so he could handle it. And the fish flop bump that, that Cornette took on the ring. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Nobody took that manager fish flop bump better than Jim Cornette. And he said it before many times on the podcast, I'm not a wrestler. I shouldn't bump like a wrestler. I should bump like a manager. And boy, right. does he throw one here at this, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Great. Just throw, where he throws his two feet out and just, just lands like, like a sack of wet oatmeal. Mm-hmm. Plop. <laughs> and I thought it was just great. I love, I love seeing him do that bump. Uh, if you've noticed, because he was a friend of his and a fan of his, Sinister Minister takes that bump too. You ever notice him take the same bump? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was always, as much as I love like J.J., and I love Gary Hart, and I love Bobby Heenan, and all great managers. All those were, guys were, were polished in-ring workers before they were managers. And sometimes they tended to take bumps that looked a little too pretty for a manager because of that. Whereas you didn't ever have that problem with Cornette. Cornette, <laughs> beautiful. But I thought it was an adequate finish for what, what, the, what the match was, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, what was the next match? The next match, well, we, we did see Gordon Soley interview Terry Funk and Gary Hart about the main event. And that's where they announced that the J and the JTEX Corporation was going to premiere that night, correct? Right. But the next match was Wildfire Tommy Rich against the Cuban Assassin. Tommy won with the Thez Press. I think mm-hmm. for some people it it probably would have been kind of the concession sand break or bathroom break or whatever. Because, again, it, go, right. it goes to one of those where there was no real reason for the match. It was essentially a TV match. But that's looking at it from right. 21st it, century eyes. Right. And once again... You've got Ole bringing Tommy back to the to the company. He needs stars. Tommy was a former NWA world champion, and he's trying to introduce him to a new audience. And we talked about this transitional phase. And this is my opinion. 
I think they should have flipped this in the opening match. I think this should have been the opening match. Mm-hmm. And this is nothing against Dave Sierra, this Cuban assassin. Great hand in the ring. Great work. Great guy. Great trainer. I met him on my trips to Florida. And he had been a, 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 a not a top guy, but like a, you know upper mid-card guy in many of the territories. But the only time he'd ever been on national TV in this transition period had been as a job guy on television. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I think it went a little too long for what they were trying to do to establish Tommy. But it's two vets that know what they're doing, so there was nothing dangerous. Their timing was good. I did notice so this, once again, both being old school guys, something that's, that's different about the business now to then. A couple of times, Dave tried to throw Tommy to the floor, and Tommy caught himself and didn't go to the floor. They never did anything on the floor because they came from that, that, they came from that era. The stuff on the outside of the ring you saved for the semi-main and the main event, and they were the third match. Guys, mm-hmm. nowadays, you can't tell kids that nowadays. Well, I'm going to go to the floor because I'm going to get my stuff in. Right. And I'll, let me also say this. I think I told you this when we're prepping. Outside of Luthez, no one threw the Luthez press better than Tommy Rich. Right. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good pick for that to be his finish. Well, um, I know Steve Austin does the Thez press, but it's a transition move. He does it, you know, he does it so he can do right. the punches to the face afterwards. Right. Now, Tommy messed up the launch, but to do a, a Thez press proper, you're supposed to hold the guy's arms down by his wrist and you double lock your, your legs around the back of his thighs. Tommy does that perfectly. So it was, I'm, I'm a mark for the, for the Fez Press, and I think Tommy did his, I think I told you as we were prepping for the show, when Tommy started using it as a finisher, Luthez was very much alive and still quite active. Right. And it should be a sign to any fans how much Luthez respected Tommy Rich that he let him use that move. Because if Luthez didn't want you to use that move, you weren't going to use that move. So anyway, this match, even though it was a little long, you didn't get the vibe of Tommy Rich from 1981 where why he was so over with that crowd in Georgia. But you, if you're not familiar with Tommy Rich, you can see that he wasn't bad in the ring. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So anyway. Yeah, and speaking of Georgia, time. Gordon Soley interviewed the Freebirds. And like you had said, it was Hayes and Garvin. They were the, the world tag team champions at the time. And it was the Freebirds promo. I mean, it was clear that they were the heels going into this because they still had those, whatever you call those, not quite what you call those kind of rainbow reflective sunglasses that were just kind of one band. Oh yeah, around the, the, it seemed to be they were a, the next evolution from, from the Terminator glasses that Arnold had. In Terminator. Right, yeah, those, you know those, those gargoyles. Yeah, and, and Garvin's got the handcuffs on his jacket and all all that stuff. So, and but, I mean, let's be honest, it, it, it's Jimmy Garvin and Michael Hayes. They're both great on the mic, so it's always going to be entertaining right. to some level, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. But and this this was the dynamic dudes Johnny Ace yes John Laurinaitis the same John Laurinaitis that was people power authority figure in, in WWE I still remember when Johnny Ace started work for WCW because that that's where he kind of started hit I shouldn't say started I think it started in Japan where he would be actually uh, started here in America but he went to Japan pretty quick yeah but when I'm talking about the backstage stuff where where him essentially working right, on, right, right, on right, matches right. and figuring out finishes and, and stuff like that but he had gotten hired in WCW for that so that's why there was actually still some good match stuff in WCW in the dying days I guess it was because John Lord was helping with the finishes and such but I still remember hearing Shane Douglas talk about this on the WCW what they call it a podcast now but it was their their internet show. And Shane Douglas saying how, because he kind of deadpanned it, where he, where he said, yeah, and what, what's amazing is just how, how much older John, Johnny Ace got, and I don't look any different. When, of course, anybody who's followed the careers of Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace, the, the opposite happens. Shane suddenly became 
45 years old and Johnny Ace, like if he still grew the mullet, he probably wouldn't have looked much different than than he did in his prime. (laughs) But that's Shane being a little uh, self-deprecating. Sure, sure. But this is also really where I noticed the dubbed over music. Fortunately, WWE has the rights to Bad Street USA, but the Dynamic Dudes, they clearly came out to music that was dubbed in. I believe I believe their theme at the time was the Fat Boys cover of Wipeout, which... Um, it was. It yeah. Was. And... This was, this was... You forgot to mention that Cornette was... I mentioned earlier when we talked about the angles coming into it. Cornette was seconding into the ring as a manager. Mm. Once right. again, making you go, why is Jim Cornette a baby <laughs> Right, right. The Freebirds were clearly the heels here. And I think there were some women that were cheering the dudes, but clearly the guys were cheering the Freebirds. Probably just, they, they just came across as cool. Because seeing a couple of guys in their late 20s, shirtless with skateboards in Philadelphia, that seems a little too California for Philadelphia, if that makes any sense. Yeah, this, this is definitely the first match where we truly begin to see the Philly, the typical Philly crowd. Booing the white meat baby faces, cheering the, the obvious heel. Yeah. And there were many points of the match where it was almost deafening the Freebirds chant. And they were doing heel tactics. So we get to see the Philly crowd on full display. Yeah. I'm reminded when I watched this match, I had discussed you know earlier in the last segment, Kerry's gone to Japan. Buddy Jack's retired. Jimmy Garvin, I'm a big fan of Jimmy. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Garvin, to me, always worked best when he was that cowardly heel who had the female valet with him. I've said before, and I'll say it again, he used the female valet better than anybody I think. Now, he used it differently than Savage used Liz, but I love how he used female valets. So putting him in with Michael Hayes as a tag team, he just wasn't playing to Jimmy's strengths, in my opinion. And whatever your opinions are of Johnny Ace, uh, he, you're right. He's about as exciting as a bowl of oatmeal with nothing right. in it. But he's in shape and he's a competent athlete. Yeah, he so seems like he seems match, like he would have been at least fairly safe to work with. You're you're not going to get a five star match, but you're not going to have any new pain. Right, exactly. And so if you as you watch this match progress, all fan reaction aside, it becomes very obvious that Michael Hayes was not the greatest in-ring guy in the world. The mm-hmm. three guys that are actually athletes are Garvin and the mm-hmm. And when either one of the dudes were in there with Garvin, it clicked a lot better. Than the Hayes was never the in- I mean, Hayes is better than he gets credit for. Mm-hmm. But Hayes, he was the mouthpiece. And right. Buddy Jack was the bowling ball that bounced around off of Von Erich. And Terry was the big heater that came in and cleaned, cleaned house. You can't really have Jimmy Garvin doing that. Yeah, Hayes basically stood behind his big buddies and, and talked to Smack while his big buddies fended off anybody from, from trying to do anything about it. Right, and you've, you've also got Hayes and Garvin being kind of old school, and both Johnny and Shane are kind of beginning this, this what, will be, what we would call new school in the mid-90s with their moves and stuff. So it was a little disjointed, but we still got to see Michael do the moonsault. We get to that beautiful left jab he did. I'm also reminded during this match, because the crowd chanting for the DDT, I have a lot of respect for Michael Hayes and, and Jimmy Garvin, obviously. But they were over a lot for using the DDT. And what does it say when you're over when you steal the move from another guy who's even more over that move at the same time? That, in another this company. Is right in the middle yeah. of, <laughs> this is right in the middle of Jake. And I don't know what else they expected the, the, the Freebirds to use as a finisher at the time. I mean, it was a cool-looking, heelish, devastating finisher. But I always had a little bit of a eh with the Freebirds using the DDT at the time. Not because I think it's a bad move, but they're doing it at the exact same time that 
Jake is using it to to great effect in in WWE. You follow right. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Another thing that I think so, is worth pointing out here is I forgot from when Shane Douglas was the white meat baby. I forgot how good some of his drop kicks were at the time. Oh, yeah, beautiful drop kick. Well, Johnny threw a pretty drop kick in the match. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a pretty Shane big guy. He's like 6'3". We're good athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't think Jimmy Garvin was far behind him. Jimmy did some good moves. I mean, it's obvious Michael Hayes was the least athletically gifted of the four, and even even what he did was better than your average person. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So. What what was the finish again? I think it was a, a screw finish on this one too, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. The, what happened here was the dudes were trying for. I it looked like it might have been like a double atomic drop or something like that, or a double back suplex. I think they called oh, it the, the wipeout. Wipe They're finishing. Yeah. There was a double slingshot belly to back suplex. Oh, okay. But what happened was it's called the wipeout. Yeah, Hayes was on the floor and. He scooped Ace's leg, so Ace fell, and then I believe it was uh, Garvin that fell on top of Douglas and got the pin. So by today's standards, you'd still probably call it clean, but you could call it dirty because Hayes, not being the legal man in the ring, reached in and tripped up Johnny Johnny Ace. Ace. That's a fine finish for a Mm -hmm. middle of the card. I mean, I am a little little weird to see a world tag team title match in the middle of the card, not more towards the end of the card, but, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Me, I'm old school. It's like if you got the world tag team title defense on your card, that should be your semi main event. Yep. Uh, unless there is no world title match in the main event, then it should be the then it should be the main event. But that's just oh yeah, it. yeah. I grew totally up agreed. In the eighties with with the Road Warriors and Rock and Rolls and Midnights and that stuff, selling out huge houses across the Carolinas as the main event. Mm-hmm. So we then had Chris Cruz interviewing the Steiners. Not exactly the best promo in the history for either men. Because yeah, I'm, rem- I'm reminded of this, how green Scott is in every mm-hmm. aspect, and why Ric Flair was probably a little trepidatious about saying, I don't know if we should give him a singles push yet. It shows right. big time here. It, right. It's a long way before he becomes big box bump. Don't right. you agree? <laughs> oh, yeah. The promo department. Right, right. Because Scott says, I think I got, not the whole thing, but the, the last line or two that he said that I wrote down said, when there's no rules, no anything in our ball game, you're playing our game. He literally had a two minute interview where I think he had 17 or 18 syntax errors. Right. In that, <laughs> yeah. it was Scott was not a good promo, and right. Rick was not great either. But Rick fit his character, his right? Gimmick, right? Right. The character of Rick Let's, Steiner is a little nuts anyway, so it kind of fit that his promos might not be exactly uh, uh, proper right. English. How odd was it to see him basically say on a promo if he got his hands on? Robin Green slash woman, he was going to suplex her. Yeah. yeah that wouldn't that, that, fly today, would it? <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Like I said, this whole thing reminded me, and it started with the promo here, and then it continues during the match. Rick had been around for a little while. Scott was greener than grass. And mm-hmm. Rick and Scott, and I know this is probably going to catch me a lot of heat for saying this, Rick and Scott were never that good, ladies and gentlemen. They really weren't. They were just big, jacked-up dudes who were legitimately tough, who did cool moves. Because they were a little bit of, let's be honest, bullies who could do it to guys, whether guys wanted them to do it. Now, they were okay at bumping and selling, but Ric Flair and Rick Steamboat, they were never going to be, ever. And I just personally prefer Undertaker, Road Warriors, and other guys of that, of that ilk who can do impressive stuff like the Steiners, but also can work a little bit. I know, I know that's going to be as unpopular, but I've never been a big Steiners fan. Because even as a fan back then, I always said, well, all these dudes do is just muscle guys over. They don't know how to build drama because they don't know how to sell. They don't know how to bump very well. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. 
they they were wrestling and making their debut in WCW, the team of Doom, which I think they actually introduced as Woman's Tag Team of Doom. Like, like they weren't quite sure whether the team was just called Doom or whether it was the tag team of Doom. But this was their debut. They still had the masks, and they were clearly heels. Again, in light of everything that happened in history, anytime I see woman from this era, I I get a little bit of a lump in my throat, a little tear in my eye. Oh yeah, it's sad. Yeah, it's hard to watch because you you realize, see, this era, she really was talented. She was Mm -hmm. a beautiful woman who knew what to do at ringside and was believable. And it's, it's, I guess anytime we, anything involving her or he who should not be named, it's going to be a little bit tough to watch. Right. But it is what it is. We, we, we've been dealing with it for over 10 years. I was a wrestling fan. So mm-hmm. now it sounded like the Steiners came to the ring. It so- sounded like a, like a Ted Nugent ripoff. I, I, I think at the time they were using but, welcome to the jungle when it, yeah, in arenas. They were, and the Samoans were at the time, which we mentioned during their match, were coming at the time to uh, the theme from Halloween by John Carpenter. Oh, because, okay. Because Warner Brothers, they had the rights to it or something. But these were both obviously removed because of copyright stuff. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. The, the peacock. Yeah, and, and I think uh, Woman, they were using just her her theme, which was actually a Bob Seger right. song. I forget the, the the exact name of it. I'm pretty sure it was Seger. Well, later, by the time Teddy Long minds Banjo, they had that, that, that saxophone-heavy uh, a song that I actually liked that would become Ron Simmons like singles entrance music when he had his little mm-hmm. pilot run a few. Okay. That one. That, I love that. But anyways, that, it is what it is. But I'm, I'm shocked that they did use Halloween theme. Now I think about it because it's Halloween Havoc. Peacock is <laughs> Univer- well, it's not even that. It's on Peacock, which is owned by Universal, which has something to do with Halloween because all the Halloween movies, including Halloween's Kill, are right now on on the peacock. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, back to the back to the Doom Steiners match. <laughs> right. But the uh, Steiners hit their suplex, and then a woman loaded. I think it was Butch Reed's mask uh, with something because, and then he headbutted Scott, I believe, to get to get the pin. So, what did you think of this match overall? It was big, strong guys. So in that in in that sense, it was big, strong guys throwing each other around. But I, I think it was just kind of like what you said. Uh, all right, Scott's kind of green, and I'm not sure. This is kind of me trying to kind of filling in the blanks all these years later. Maybe they hadn't quite figured out how Doom was going to progress, what they were going to do. So right. it, but, it's, it seemed like both, it was just kind of there. Yeah, but both you and I are in a hoss fight, and this was mm-hmm. a tag team hoss fight. Yeah, exactly. It was four jacked up dudes who were all going to go on the Hall of Fame at some point, just beating the living crap out of other. And that's always entertaining on a level. Isn't oh, it? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and Hoss fights are at their best when they're a little shaky. When when every right. not they everything look, moves quite as smoothly. They should look smooth and clean like Flair Steamboat. They exactly. should not look smooth yeah. and like that. They they should go more like Andre versus Stan Hansen from that I don't know if it's New right. Japan or, or All Japan. Be two Mack trucks coming head to head, head to head at 45 miles an hour. And that's kind of what this was. Right. Right. Except instead of being two Mack trucks it was four Mack trucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then we had uh, well I think we had Alex Luger promo, but we had the US champion right. Uh, total package, Lex Luger. He pinned Brian one Pillman. Thing, one thing about that about promo, mm-hmm. we talked about how good Gordon was at being an interviewer. After Luger cuts a pretty decent heel promo and talks about how he's a champion and all this stuff, Gordon ends the interview with, how long have you been champion? And Luger's response was, I'll be champion as long as I want to be Gordon. And then Gordon says, but you've been champion multiple times, which means you are beatable. Yes. That is why Gordon Sully was a great interviewer, because mm-hmm. he points out something that's obvious. You've lost that belt before, Luger, which means you are beatable. Right. But anyways, anytime I get to see Gordon do those little things like that, 
Gordon was so good. Oh my god. Oh yeah. But I'm not yeah. telling any of our listeners either they don't know. Absolutely. Now the, what the yeah, the the U.S. title match, uh, Lex Luger pinned Brian Pillman with the stun gun, where it wasn't called the stun gun at the time, but the uh, the, the the neck to the ropes type thing. Uh, right, but right. This, in my opinion, was probably the best match as far as straight in-ring work, mm-hmm. but it also backs up what I've said about Luger for years, that he's probably at his best when he has a smaller, more agile guy. You know, it's, uh, yeah. Those are probably when he has his best matches. And he can just throw around mm-hmm. and get over his size and his power. Luger was never a guy that could do a hoss fight. We saw that when he had his feud with Stan Hansen. We saw that when he had his feud with Yokozuna. We saw that when he had his feud with Hogan, though I thought mm-hmm. that some of him and Hogan's matches were actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like the matches with Well, Hogan's always had this issue with not wanting to sell for guys unless he felt they were believable, and Luger was big enough and jacked enough that he sold for them, kind of like he did for Warrior. Yeah, so, and not only that, without, uh, at least a couple of those matches, Luger beat Hogan by submission. You almost never saw Hogan lose by submission. Right, right. And, and you're also reminded that even though he was fairly green, how awesome Brian Pillman was from the jump. Oh, yeah. The guy was just one of the greatest pure natural athletes of yeah. businesses. And, and, and both these guys were football players before this, so it kind of makes right, sense. Right, right. Brian was never a big guy, but he always had a great body. He was always mm-hmm. in shape. Even after the, 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 the car wreck made him a shell of who he was, he still got back in the gym and got pretty good shape, physique-wise. Right. You know? Yeah, and, so, and he he was good enough that he could have matches without having to resort to flying drop kicks and stuff. Yeah, I'm reminded of Bruce Pritchard's podcast with Conrad Thompson, where he talked about when they went to the infamous where he pulled a gun on, on, on Stone Cold Raw mm-hmm. segment. So the only guys that were – that really was Brian's house in suburban Cincinnati. And the only guys that went up there from the office to do that was Bruce as the, as the producer and a camera guy. And as they got there early before they went live, they're going around the house. And Bruce talked about they went in this room that was a base Brian's man cave before that term existed. And he said literally from floor to ceiling across this whole wall was nothing but athletic trophies and plaques. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to Melanie, Brian's widow now. What is that? And she's like, oh, that's Brian's hockey trophies. Here's his tennis. I mean, the guy was just an incredible athlete. Mm-hmm. This guy had been competing in multiple sports since he was like five and always been one of the best at all of them. It's sad that, he, that, that what happened to Brian, but this, this match is a reminder of how good he really was before the accident as far as just pure athleticism. And Absolutely. like you said, he made Luger look good because Luger works better when he has guys that he can get his size and his strength over. Mm-hmm. I think Luger at this point, too, I mean, this is where you go and finish. I think this is a point in Luger's career where Luger was a little more motivated. He'd been working with Flair and Barry and those guys long enough that some of the, the greenness was gone, and he saw his star on the rise. He was young enough and not broke down enough to where he could could show some of his athleticism, yeah. and he kind of got it. Yeah, some, some more confidence. Exactly, exactly. Anyways, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Go ahead. Now, the finish, it looked like there was a miscommunication of some sort. I know the announcers seemed to cover for it, but Brian went for the top turnbuckle dropkick. Luger fell on his back, almost like he was selling it, even though clearly Pillman missed by a mile. So the, the announcer sold it. That's yeah. on Lex. <laughs> yeah, but, but the announcer sold it like... Luger was ducking out of the way, like he was flopping out of the way before the kick hit him. So and Rob then and JR basically bailed out his ass from screwing right, up. That's what right. And, That's what and, great announcers can do, though. Mm-hmm. Spot spots all the time. And then Luger came to and then dropped Pillman across the top rope by his neck and then uh, pinned him for that. So, like I said, the move that Austin would call the stun gun later. 
Well, I know you're a big Lex Lubark. Always have mm-hmm. been. Oh yeah. What was your feeling on a on a big pay per view match like this where he didn't go over the finisher? Well, I think I think he had freshly turned here because I think we talked earlier that this was mm-hmm. that kind of epic reign that he had for like almost two years and he right. was both a heel right. and a baby face so i think the way it ended i'm not even sure what luger's finish would have been at this point because i don't think he was using the rack, rack. it was still the rack no, okay the rack okay the rack he didn't stop using the rack until he started using the pile driver when he got the world title okay yeah i definitely remember that when he, he using the pile driver he was with harley but so so yeah i i was trying to remember what his finish was at the time because kind of doing it with the the neck across the the top just seemed it seemed a little out of the blue, but I can also see they probably didn't want Brian to lose by submission. So I said, well, we'll right. that's come up with something right. for a pinball. That's, that's why I asked you, because you have to remember, this was the era before UFC, and that is one of the things, things, I, things, things I think UFC has brought to wrestling was guys, uh, figured-in top guys didn't tap back then. Mm-hmm. That was just the way it was seen. And the only time you ever saw a guy tap back then, it was always going to be. It was never going to be a baby fit. Right. So that's probably why they did that finish. They didn't want Brian to tap. Now that we have seen years of UFC and realizing really tough, badass guys do tap if they're locked in the real submission hold, that is translated over to pro wrestling, where it is not, not as shameful to tap out to a guy mm-hmm. anymore. So that's, but you're, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Anyways, I just right. wanted to ask you what you thought. You're a bigger yeah. Lex Luger fan than I am, mm-hmm. so. I didn't know if you were upset about that or not. No, no, not not, not at all. Now, we also saw Chris Cruz interview the Road Warriors. And then the semi-main was the Road Warriors against the Skyscrapers with uh, Teddy Long with the Skyscrapers and Paul Ellering with the Road Warriors. Both guys, of course, famously used rock music. I want to say the Skyscrapers music was Scorpions. And Road Warriors, we all know they, they used Iron Man. At this point, they were using a bastardized, kind of like made-for-them version, but it was still the same riff. You yeah, know. still had that opening bend. Meow. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so the Road Warriors skyscrapers match, I we were talking a little bit about it in, in prep that it's kind of both guys seem to have the similar gimmick in that they were big, tough guys who didn't sell much, didn't get hurt much. But when you put guys like that in the ring together, they got to be really good in order for it to actually work. It's like, to use a Japanese example, Ishii, I think, is like that. You can put Ishii in with somebody like uh, Minoru Suzuki, who also doesn't try to sell much, and it works because they're just both tough hosses. This one, it right. seemed like they, it's like they didn't want to sell, if that makes any sense. you you This is the type of stuff you see more than I do because you've been in the ring and I, I think haven't. This is the we- I think this is the weakest match of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got the Road Warriors. The crowd's kind of beginning to... They have been such such monsters for so long. It, what does Cornette always say? You, if you, you, you can't miss me if I don't go away. I think we right. were at that point. And they were kind of burned out. It wasn't long that they were gone up the vents. You got Sid Vicious, who was never the greatest in-ring guy to begin with, and he's greener than grass at this mm-hmm. point. And Dan Spivey, who also was a guy who never wanted to sell, was never very good at selling to begin with, and he's coming back over from Japan where they don't sell anyways. So... You can see how this kind of becomes a cluster. Combined with the fact that from a booking standpoint, I'm asking myself, I'm putting my booking cap on as I'm watching it going, did we just have the same match two matches ago with Doom and, and the Steiners? Right. Stylistically, it's the same match, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but the Steiners and Doom match was much better. Right, it was. You can attribute that a lot. As much as I gave Steiners crap, you can attribute a lot of that to the Steiners did do cool suplexes. So 
at least there was a little bit of uh, some seemingly scientific or technical wrestling involved. And look, I don't hate on, on Sid as much as most people do, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't, hate, I don't hate on Dan Spivey as, as a lot of people. And I love the Road Warriors, but yeah. they were lim- all four of those guys are limited. And you put them in a match together on pay-per-view, and it's just a recipe for not good. And that's exactly what we got, in my opinion. Right, right. And so the, the finish was the, the match basically fell apart, but it looked like the Road Warriors were going to get a pin, but then Teddy Long came in with, I'm not joking, they called it the heavy metal key. And uh, I think it was Spivey started using that, and he hit Hawk with it, and that was the DQ. And then the heels right. tried to beat down with the heavy metal key, and then I think the baby faces chased them off after that. But now, it, it, it but clearly imagine- it was just kind of a fall apart in the, fin- in the end. This now, now you take the Road Warriors and put them against Tully and Arn. Been a great match. Absolutely, you're taking the Rock and Rock and Rolls or the Fantastics and put them in there with the Skyscrapers. Been a great match. Mm-hmm. But those four guys together, right? Style clashes make mm-hmm. these styles big class. They were, anyway, we got our main event interview. You might say Gordon Sola interviewing Sting, Flair, and Oli. I think you can imagine what each of those guys saying. And I know it's a little weird to see Oli as a babyface, but he was a good babyface when he wanted to be. I don't care what, what he basically did. When, when Oli cut a promo, it was a good promo. Yeah. And this is when I first learned watching the match, because maybe they had mentioned it before and I missed it, but it, it really wasn't made clear until the promo when Oli said it that the only finish to the match was the manager had to throw in the towel. That was going to be the, so there actually was no pin attempts. There were submission moves, like Flair did use the, the figure four and such, but the announcers made it clear that you're not going to see covers in this because that's not how to win this match. And this was what they called the Thunderdome match where they had the steel cage that was supposedly electrified. Well, actually, my understanding was that this was a regular steel cage, but on top of it was electrified barbed wire so you couldn't climb out of the cage. Okay. So it was, it was a gimmick match. It was a, a variation on, on a cage match. With a little bit of war games thrown in with a, with a throwing the towel in thing. It was a match that was, this was probably their first attempt at, at kind of playing to the Halloween theme. This terrible, violent type thing is what this match was going to be. And I'm sure garbage wrestling hadn't really started in Japan yet. So I can't say that Muda or, or Funk had really contributed that. That would become a few years later. But we can kind of see where some of that that craziness over in like FMW would start a few years later in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the death matches and stuff. You throw all that in. They're leaning, like I said, they're once again they're leaning into the Halloween theme of kind of a horror, a torture chamber kind of stuff. I think you want this to be a, a finish that is going to be satisfying. That's going to maybe possibly end this feud. So anyway, it was what it was. Yeah. Now, now it, it is kind of funny though because there was supposedly the electrified part at the top of the cage so you couldn't climb out but the guys were climbing around anyway flair was practically swinging around like tarzan from from the from the corners there and sting especially so but probably the highlight of the opening of the match when they were bringing the cage down because they did lower it from the ceiling somehow one of the decorations at the top of the cage caught on fire so you have these guys trying to put out the fire otherwise they probably have to evacuate the building and then it's like the first babyface thing I think Muda did in his WCW career is he climbed up and then he spat mist to the fire and, and blew out the fire with his mist, which I thought was which pretty amazing. Which might have got the biggest pop of the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I remember right, they had like 
a little like camo netting or mesh netting. It was like just an aesthetic that was on, they had on the top of the cage. Mm-hmm. And they had pyrotechnics that were to make sparks to sell the, elect, the quote-unquote electrical aspect of, of it. And they did one, and the sparks just hit this very dry, easily flammable cloth. And the way Tommy Young saw it, like, holy crap. And that was what made Tommy Young the greatest referee of all time. His facials were as good as any wrestler. Mm-hmm. And him trying to put it out and and – and you kind of got Bob Connell and, and Jim Ross kind of selling it, but no selling it at the same time. And then this casually Muda walking up spits the mist. And, goes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and let's be honest, the crowd, it's a Philly crowd. They want to see the mist anyways, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and really, uh, I, I mean, mean, I know Great Mood is supposed to be a heel and all that, but that still is not above something I think a heel would do because then he can turn on and say, hey, look what I did. I think we're reminded in this match, even with the mist, just the way Muda could move at that point before you, this is long before he oh, yeah. was shot. Yeah. When he, he it would be was, able to do it, those, what, what would you call it? The, the, the handspring elbow where he kind of do the, the cartwheel elbow, and the elbow into the corner. Yeah. Drive elbow where he did like that corkscrew and he dropped an elbow so fast. His moonsault, mm-hmm. his spinning karate kick. It was just, he had a baby face set. And you saw, even though it was a Philly crowd, I can tell you from personal experience, he was getting that kind of reaction in regular towns like here in the South, okay? Right. The only reason, and it's been well documented, the only reason Great Muda was not a babyface was because Gary Hart was a mm-hmm. And it was because Gary Hart realized that Muda was his meal ticket. What would Gary do if Muda turned babyface? Because mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Gary Hart cannot be a babyface manager. Yeah. You, you just look at the guy. Was, but, but yeah. Gary Hart couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Gary looks like the bad guy out of every 80s action movie. Exactly. And I don't mean that as an you insult. Know, and, no, no, that's not a knock. He had that Fu Manchu mustache. Mm-hmm. And he had the scar on his face where he literally had had part of his nose ripped off during that plane wreck in the Tampa Bay when mm-hmm. Buddy Colt was flying. He's lucky him and Austin Idol. Of course, Buddy Colt died. Him mm-hmm. and Austin Idol were both messed up from it yeah. years before. You've heard me say before, I think the first time I ever said it on a recording here on the podcast was in my interview with Susan Green. Years ago, when me and Susan are both saying, you can't fight what God gave you. Don't try to. And so Gary wasn't going to fight it. But it's just painfully obvious during this entire match that the crowd did not really want to boo Muda. And for what it's worth, they really didn't want to boo Funk either. Mm -hmm. And this is before. Oh, it's crazy because he's entertaining as hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like we were saying a little bit before, that this is before this kind of transition into the Middle Asian crazy Terry Funk. You see yeah, him come out yeah. for this match, and you could see how fit he was, how in shape he was, because he didn't oh, have yeah, the body of a 45-year-old man. Hard, yeah. Yeah. Because that's about how it's old he would have been at this point, what, I think, right? What, 45? 42, 43 yeah. at this point, probably, when he had yeah. the match? Yeah. He still had the body of a 30-year-old, it looked like. Yeah. This was a match where, even more so accentuated by the fact that the Philly crowd, these are four guys that none of them wanted to boot. Mm-hmm. These are four guys that are charismatic, have cool movesets, are entertaining, and we talked about in prep, you take those four guys. The in-ring referee is Tommy Young. The outside-the-ring referee is Bruno San Martino. And the managers are Ole Anderson and Gary Hart. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody I just think that isn't a first ballot Hall of Famer? Right. How could this match be bad with that lineup? I just, it right. But, I mean, did it live up to your expectations for the, for the hype that it got as, like, this deadly match? Yeah, I would say so, especially since you have two champions in the match. That That's the big thing. When you think of a pay-per-view, you think title matches. Now, right, granted— but you got a world one, champion on one side and a TV champ on the other. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, and one of the things I always point out when people talk about lack of title matches on a pay-per-view, well, the very first WrestleMania, the world champion was in a tag match, and the title wasn't on the line. So you right. can do it from time but to time. But, was the, you know, but the semi-main was the women's championship. So Yeah, yeah, there, there you go. But but yeah, th- this was one of those, and, and they, I think the whole, I do think the Thunderdome gimmick kind of hurt it. It probably would have been better off if it was just more of a traditional cage match. Or even just a street fight, like right. no rules. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, with those guys, uh, it that much talent involved, they would have to be trying to screw up in order to make it screw up. They, I think one of those decorations in the cage, it looked like a Joker. And of course, I don't mean the Batman villain, like what you would actually see in a deck of cards. It was like the jester hat right. and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. the other thing that just, just seemed out of place was how ma- how many guys were climbing and kind of swinging on that rope for no real apparent reason. I think Sting was trying to do it where he'd like do like swinging kicks. But other than right. that, like I mean, I thought it was fine. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, of course, this is right after the, the hit of, of the third Mad Max movie, Th- Beyond Thunderdome, mm-hmm. and I think that's why right. they went with the name, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think for those four guys, like you said, Funk was, was in great shape, Flair was in his prime, Sting was young and his knee wasn't burnt yet, Muda was young and his knees weren't shot yet. So it's a main event that you got nonstop action from mm-hmm. four guys, which I would expect that out of those four guys and that era of their careers. And that, right. that's what you got. What was the finish again on this match? I remember it was, it was Mosh Fish with the towel thing. Right, right. What, what, te- yeah, you could say that the heels got screwed, but technically Gary Hart did throw the towel. But what happened was Flair put Funk in the figure four, and Sting uh-huh. kept doing top rope splashes on him. So it was the, you know, we're just going to keep doing this till you give up. And I think... Right, or until, or until Gary Hart throws the towel in. Right, yeah. right. So Muda, I think, tried to get at Bruno. Uh, I don't know if he tried to chop him or through the mist or whatever. Bruno turned around and slugged Muda. So Muda just kind of tumbled out of the ring. At this point, both Gary Hart and Ole are trying to get into the ring. And Ole slugs Gary Hart. So Gary Hart kind of slips and takes that, that manager bump. His hand goes up in the air, which has the towel. So the towel goes up in the air and then lands on Bruno. So Bruno sees the towel. He looks around. He sees Ole still holding his tower, towel pointing at Gary. And Gary. so thus Bruno ruled that Gary threw in the towel, which technically did happen. But it's enough stuff there where you could see the, how the heels would try to say that the good guys cheated by kicking the sure. kicking the towel out of his hand. Well, gives them a reason to get their heat. Right, exactly. And you've got to use Bruno. You don't bring in a guy like Bruno San Martino and not have him involved in this. Right. It's, Think it, it's reminiscent of me of, of Gene Kaniski being the special referee in the, the first main event of Starcade. Right. The first Starcade. Right. Because where, where he, um, kind of, he kind of tripped, he kind of tripped Harley up by accident as Flair came off the top of the crossbody. You don't mm-hmm. bring a Gene Kaniski and you don't bring a Bruno in and have them be a special enforcer or guest every, unless they get involved somehow. Right. It, it, I mean, especially... even Mike Tyson gets involved in the Stone Cold Shawn Michaels match years later right. at Bay Mania. You don't right. bring in a guy like that without you know, but it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it defeats the point of having a special referee mm-hmm. because if you're just going to do a ref bump finish, then there's no point in having the, the guest referee. The, I like the way I want to say it was Brian Alvarez that said it at one point. Maybe it would have been about Starcade, but ideally, a referee is supposed to be not literally, of course, but for the most part, invisible. You don't really think yeah. about the referee until he's checking mm-hmm. for a submission, until he's checking to see if there might be a disqualification or something like that. But when you got a guest referee, kind of by nature, you got the eyes on the referee for that match. 
So you don't want to have a guest referee unless there is a point to it. I've trained a couple refs, and I always Mm -hmm. tell them, if you ref a match and the fans don't remember you, then you did your job. Right. If they're talking about something you did, unless it's a dusty where you're involved in some kind of controversial reversal or something of a finish, then we got a problem. Yeah. Because you should be, like like Brian said, you should be invisible. It just, it is what it is. You can do little things like Tommy Young did or Brian Hildebrand. You see that great yeah. one where he do his, do like the, the two the, things. The like double gun salute. Gun like, yeah, winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for, for the most part, you should not recognize a referee. You shouldn't even right. realize they were there. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, you've done your job. And, and overall, now that we, we look back on this card and you see it for what it is, take it in context, historically speaking, for the time frame, what would you give it? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Oh, I'd definitely give it a thumbs up. I'd probably say like maybe seven, seven and a half out of 10 if I were to, if I were to rate it. There really wasn't that much bad stuff that you would see in WC because this is really, I think, around the time Jim Hurd was taking over as far as promoter, I want to say. Close to, if not right at the start of it. Right. Right. So that that's really where I think a lot of the cruddy stuff happened with WCW. But there was some cruddy stuff here, the, but you they were using what Turner had as far as promoting as such. Because if I recall correctly, I didn't have cable at this time, but I think if I recall correctly, there were promos on TBS and stuff with Elvira because Elvira was actually, I think, on TBS at the time. Yeah, right? she so, was. She was, and they were. Yeah. So this, this was them trying to, starting to use the national stars that Turner had for TBS and such to promote the shows. And that, and that all, that all makes sense. So, but like I said, it's a good example of showing what was the good and the bad about WCW at the time. And like we said, things like the the Halloween theme with welcome to the jungle. That was one of the advantages to having Turner. He had these connections through his cable network to where they were able to get stuff like that. Like, like, yeah, they they were able to use that stuff legally effectively because really the, the, the idea of a streaming service, and uh, recording and stuff like that. I mean, VCRs existed, of course, but usually in those days, videotapes were made more with rental in mind than buying. So a uh, VHS tape uh, of this, if you were to get it at a store, it would, you'd probably have to rent it. Otherwise, you'd be paying like 80 or $90 for it. Well, a big part of the money revenue for the early days was Turner Home Video. So there was Turner Home Video was heavily involved in the corporate structure of WCW at the time. And you would often commercials during the 605 TBS World Championship Wrestling broadcast to mail order buy these pay-per-view events. Mm-hmm. So, and yep. like you said, they were like 50, 60 bucks, mm-hmm. which is unheard of nowadays. But that was back when movie studios and companies like this had not quite figured out the rental market and what people were willing to pay or not pay for videotapes. And you know, once they figured that out, you saw the prices of them drastically in the mid-90s, where right. you could pick up. Like a, a, a fairly brand new movie from Walmart for what twenty bucks? Yeah. On, on on DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's going to wind up this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories, where we talked Halloween Havoc, and I guess we got uh, eleven and a half months to decide which one we're going to do for next year. But if there's any shows uh, you want like us I said, to, there's like twelve of them, so we got twelve years worth. Of right. <laughs> and we're all ears. We're all open for if. You, the listeners, have any suggestions as far as shows you'd like you'd like to talk about? We we also do cover careers of wrestlers. We cover births of promotions, backgrounds, things like that. Really, as we like to say, the only cutoff when it comes to classic wrestling memories, at least at this point in time, is 
the end of the Monday Night War with the death of WCW. Anything before that's fair game. Anything after that, if we're going to talk about it, it's just going to be for putting stuff in uh, a perspective, old versus new, you might say. So, and train, this is, as we keep saying, Halloween. So anything else coming down the pike for other wrestling or Geekville shows that we have? No. First off, you can always reach me and tell me if I was wrong on anything on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That is my handle across all social media platforms. We will be recording and examining the dead this weekend. So expect the Halloween edition of examining the dead to, to drop probably what beginning of next week. Once you get mm-hmm. done with editing, we've got also got at some time, by the time that's dropping, we're planning to record our October entrance entrant into the lesser known geek hall of fame. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you what, who that, what that inductee is. Cause I know Seth likes to have fun dangling those carrots teasing on, yeah. on social media before. <laughs> yes. Playing those breadcrumbs out. So but it's going to be fun. We, we might get another Geekville proper in before Halloween itself, where we're going to talk about the other. We've already talked the Muppets Haunted Mansion uh, special on Disney+. Plus. We're going to talk the other Halloween special they dropped, which was Lego Star Wars Terrifying Tales. But we might not get to that before Halloween. We can't make any promises. There's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> so yep. many days in the month of October. Of course, uh, on Halloween Day itself, stay tuned. We will have a, a, a special that we do every year where we will go over all of the lesser-known horror movies that we've been putting on the Examine the Dead Facebook page, all 31 of them. So that's pretty much all I've got. Have, mm-hmm. have, have you recorded the Examine the Doctor with Mark on uh, Horror at Fang Rock yet? We've done the first episode of that, so that'll be dropping probably shortly after you hear this, and then we'll do the... The rest of that story shortly, and uh, yeah, well, I I've been meaning to talk DC Fandom on Geekville for a while, but between real life responsibilities here, and it, it, you, know, you can only kind of so many hours in the day, like you said. But uh, we, 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 if we do not get Fandom in in October because of all the Halloween theme stuff that we do do in the month of October, rest assured it'll be early in November that we'll get that one up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lot to talk about that came out of that. So yep, yeah, I agree. You can hear us, if you're hearing us for the first time, you can find us pretty much across all platforms. Classic Wrestling Memories, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, pretty much you name it. And we do have other shows in the Geekville Radio family where we talk TV, movies, superheroes and such, like like Trini just talked talked about, uh, Halloween theme all month. So if you do a search for Geekville Radio or Classic Wrestling Memories, you should have no trouble finding us. ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the website. And we're also on Facebook at Classic Wrestling Memories. We're always open to suggestions and feedback. The only thing I ask if, when you give us feedback is just be honest because I like feedback best when it's honest, when it's genuine, even if it's negative. I'd rather hear true negatives than phony positives, if that makes any sense. We'll turn off the power here in the Classic Wrestling Memories studios. We'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.
I can't say that Muda or, or Funk had really contributed that. That would become a few years later. But we can kind of see where some of that, that craziness over in, like, FMW would start a few years later in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The death matches and stuff. <coughs> Time stamp. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Whoa, that coffee went down the wrong pipe. <coughs> well, right. I, was well I, got her, I got her stinger now. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Okay. Where was I at? Uh, well, y- yeah. Oh, you... Guard dressing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I, I think that you throw all that in, they're leaning, like I said, they're, once again, they're 